Hiya, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too, so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where each episode we review and break down a movie based on a link to the previous episode's movie. I'm Ed Hells, and as ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Madeline Gould. How you doing, Gould? Hi, Ed. How you doing? Oh, I'm good. My wife has passed her driving test this week, so uh, hey! that's a, a gateway to many adventures in the future. It, it's a really special type of freedom that it gives you. Freedom in terms of like, yeah, you could just get in the car and drive off somewhere, but also just stuff like, you could do a big shop, Ed. Yep. Ah, oh, massive congrats. That's so exciting. I went on a little road trip down to the Cotswolds the other day and felt like proper grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> you adulted. <laughs> we did. We adulted around the around the around the Cotswolds. Went to a model village and everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love that it, uh, it sort of it brings the knowledge that all the people that you see going around their farm shops and things like that mm-hmm. must also be going around going like, oh my God, we're in a farm shop. <laughs> it's like no people are actual adults. Yeah, we're all no, pretending. Yeah, we're all pretending. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Ed, what have you been watching since we last spoke? Oh well, I've uh, yeah, I've had I've had quite a time. I've been in full sort of Halloween mode because we're recording this just a week after Halloween. So yeah, so went and saw two classics at the cinema that I'd never seen on the big screen before. I've seen them both um, at home previously. So I went to see The Shining and I mm. went to see The Exorcist. Um, the Shining, I didn't really get much new out of it. What is what is Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining? It. <laughs> It's it's ju- it's just a ghost train, really. It's just you know, turn a corner. Oh, spooky twins! Turn a corner. Oh, what's that? Why is there blood coming down his head? Oh, oh, turn a corner. Lifts in blood and stuff. Uh, it's not like he sort of intentionally throws character development and logic and all that sort of narrative stuff out of the window with the intention of sort of streamlining the focus on making everything as sort of unnerving as possible. Mm. And it it is that it is unnerving. I don't find it frightening. I don't find it scary it doesn't scare me mostly because it's it's too much of a ghost train for me personally right yeah yeah but do you mean is it like a, like a bit hokey kind of like ho- hokey feels like an unfair word it feels it feels like it's cheapening the craft of the film and there is mm. it's not it's not hokey in a sense not like sort of so much of Pet Cemetery was hokey. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It, it's more, and this is the bit where I'm going to scare you with some noise. And this is the bit yeah. where I'm going to scare you with some imagery that is just a little bit mm-hmm. creepy and not right. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful piece of work to, to look at. But yeah, if you compare it to the novel, like which actually I'm currently reading for the third or fourth time. When you compare it to the novel, Jack Nicholson's version of Jack Torrance, you see him at the very start and you're just like, oh, yeah, you're, you're mad. And you're mm. you're definitely going to kill your family or try to. Whereas the novel is much more about a man fighting his demons, yeah, desperately. And I th- and I think that's sort of what I'm talking about when I talk about 
as Kubrick throwing character development and logic out of the window um, mm. in favour of just keeping it sort of tense and it's it's mm. it's stripping stripping everything but the horror out of it. And I think I find it less scary for that because I'm less attached to the characters for that, if that makes sense. Have you seen the documentary Room 237? I haven't. I'd be interested to. I implore everyone to watch it. It's so great. It isn't about the making of The Shining in the kind of traditional sense. It's a documentary which is all about the conspiracy theories surrounding the uh, messaging in The Shining and Mm -hmm. the making of The Shining. And it's talking heads, but you never see the people. You only hear the voiceovers. So it's entirely built of images uh, taken from the film The Shining, Mm -hmm. photographic stills, um, and also film references uh, to other things. These people and these, these theories, I mean, who are we to say whether any of them are right or wrong? But just hearing how complex some of these are. Like there's one lady who talks almost exclusively about the impossible geography of the Overlook Hotel in Kubrick's film. Mm-hmm. Um, and like um, someone else whose particular focus is on it as it being about the Holocaust, someone else about it being the kind of massacre of Native Americans, mm. um, someone else talking about how it's clearly Kubrick's confession to faking the moon landing videos, <laughs> yes. someone else. And it, honestly, it just goes on and on and on. And, mm. and some of it, they actually show you in the, footage and they're like they pause it and go this is what we're talking about Mm -hmm. and some of them you're like oh yeah no I see that and then some of them you're like literally you're explaining it to me while I'm looking at the image and I don't understand what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) so I I I, I think (laughs) I think a a lot of that stuff is is sort of constructed within the film and to give it that sense of it's a sort of dream-like quality a sort of nightmare quality like like uh, what david lynch sort of went on to do like where stuff doesn't ever quite fully add up in a way Mm. that that makes sort of naturalistic logical sense and that keeps you on edge so talking about the impossible geography of the overlook like yeah that's not something that you would watch the film and go oh this hotel doesn't work in Mm -hmm. terms of its geography but subconsciously there is probably mm. something going on in your brain that's just like this is something about that's not right it's uncanny uncanny yes that's the word i'm looking for yeah you're absolutely right uncanny i think it's as well this documentary is a really interesting example of how much our own personal context affects the way we view film because mm-hmm. you know one of them i think is a, his- a holocaust historian so obviously he watches the film and sees holocaust imagery everywhere in it yeah. um you know the re- recurrence of the number 42 and the like all of this imagery Mm-hmm. Um, whereas someone else coming at it from the point of view of being a historian or having a special interest in something else, subliminal messaging. It's like, oh yeah, um, when such and such turns his body that way, the stapler on the desk becomes a massive phallus. It's like, what? Oh God, okay. Um, so I, I, yeah, I really, really heartily recommend watching this documentary. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely fascinating. You might come away from it thinking, what a load of old nonsense. There's no way he meant all that. Sure. Um, but it definitely, it definitely makes you want to watch the film again. Uh, it's on, it's on, Shudder mm-hmm. so if you've got um, a Shudder subscription you can watch it there but I think you can also just rent it but yeah it's re- it's yeah. such a good documentary it's real fun it's definitely a film that we're going to have to cover at some point on the pod because like I'd even just now it. we've we've chatted about it for like probably almost 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> I, I do also want to uh, talk about The Exorcist uh, which I also mm. went to see now it's interesting I first saw The Exorcist when I was probably about 17 or 18 and at the time I thought much like I've was saying about uh, about The Shining just now, I was like, it's just a sort of silly boo movie that's making you go, oh, and now 
oh, she's vomiting everywhere. And oh, now her head's turned around. And oh, now she's walking backwards down the stairs. And, you know, I've seen it probably three or four times since then. And each time as a movie, it has grown in my estimation up until this last time when I saw it at the cinema for the first time, where I just I thought it was brilliant. It again didn't scare me, but it did upset me. I find it very, very upsetting. And actually, the most upsetting moment of the movie for me is actually before all the sort of big gaudy effects and all the big horror starts. It's all the stuff quite near the beginning when she's being subjected to all those awful tests. Yeah. And there's clearly something wrong. But there's one moment that really stands out and it's the dinner party when uh, Ellen Burstyn and all her friends are there around the piano or whatever it is, having a nice time. And she comes down the stairs and Burstyn's like, oh, what's the matter, honey? And she, she wheezes on the floor. And it's so horrible. You're just like, what? seriously, what is wrong with this little girl? It's It's a horrifying movie in several ways that you don't, expect if you haven't seen it if you haven't seen the exorcist and just look at the pictures of linda blair all sort of made up with mm. demon makeup and all that you go okay yeah i know what this movie is mm, it's not that movie it really yeah. isn't i think especially with them um, the most recent Ex- exorcist believer which by all accounts is an absolute piece of shit um <laughs> coming yes. out in the cinema recently as well and you know when you look at the trailer for that and the what the focus of that is on mm-hmm. and you're like you've not understood what the first one was yeah like as with so many things um you know the first one is a thing and then all the films that come subsequently are kind of built around a misconception about what the fir- what made the first one good. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. I I love The Exorcist. I think it's really incredible. I don't know if it's partly informed by the fact that this time I went in having read the novel, because I read the novel last year, I think. And suddenly the the sort of richness of all the other characters uh, sort of surrounding that uh, central plot just really came alive for me. Like Father Karras made so much sense in the context that I was watching it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching it again. Yeah, I just I I thought there was so much to get out of it. So interesting how it can take a few goes at something. Thing, for it to come alive for you yeah. fully you know really interesting I, yeah I love The Exorcist I'm so I'm really jealous that you got to see it on the big screen I could have gone to see it on the big screen but I chose to go and see Psycho with a live orchestra as my Halloween watch yes. so <laughs> it was great um, it actually it inspired a, quite an interesting conversation between. so Richard hadn't seen it before mm-hmm. before we went in I got him to tell me what he thought the plot was <laughs> oh right wow <laughs> okay. it, it, was, it was so funny the film had an interval because mm. it was in a theatre so um, at the interval I was like so what do you think what do you think what do you think and he he was really pissed off we got to the end of the film and he enjoyed the second half much 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 more mm. and he has subsequently said that he would really love to watch it again so we then ended up having a conversation about watching films where you know there's a twist and mm. you know what the twist is and how actually the first time you watch something knowing that there's going to be a twist mm-hmm. it's really irritating Yes, and actually once you've watched the whole thing and seen what the journey is to get to the twist only then can you actually enjoy watching mm. it again so I think it was obviously it was his first time watching Psycho and he actually found it really tedious and quite irritating mm. and he was really pissed off with how Mari- how bad Marion Crane was at doing her crime he was like <laughs> be better at the crime <laughs> and he said to me afterwards that he now thinks that he needs to 
if he's going to watch a classic that he knows a little bit about, mm-hmm. he needs to look up the plot so that he knows before he goes in exactly what's going to happen nice. so that he can just enjoy watching it. Because otherwise, he's, his brain is going too fast at trying to unpick it. Mm. And then it made me think of some other films that I've seen before where I've sort of known where it's going before I watched it and then I just sort of got a bit pissed off and it's like, ah, mm. maybe I need to revisit it and watch it a second time and just enjoy the journey rather than trying to work out what's going to happen. I remember the first time I saw The Sixth Sense, um, I went in having been told that there's a twist but not having been told what the twist was and I got probably about half an hour in and was like oh well it's probably that oh I hope it's not I hope it's something that surprises me oh oh, it is that okay yeah whereas I can watch The Sixth Sense now and go oh this works I like this yes exactly that but um one thing that surprised me about Psycho Mm -hmm. ludicrous Ed I can't believe it hadn't occurred to me it's all strings in the in the score there's nothing else. It's only strings. So, Because when it was like, yeah. oh, with a full live orchestra and I sat down and then everyone came on stage and I was like, oh. Where's my French horns? <laughs> <laughs> where's my timpani? <laughs> no, um, I found it a really quite profound experience Excellent. watching it with a live orchestra. It, were, it moved me almost to tears with sort of like just the overwhelm of, I, I'm sorry, I, I just, um, I'm going to warn you here, I'm going to sound like an absolute wanker. Go for it. It made me think about what an absolute gift any kind of creative endeavour is to its audience. Psycho as a film, for anything else about the making of it or what Hitchcock was like as a person, all of that baggage, mm-hmm. that piece of filmmaking to its audience, it's, and it's a it's a film that is really all for its audience. Mm-hmm. Everything is for us. It's all about thrilling us, giving us pleasure, making us excited and scared and f- it making us feel things mm. and I don't know why that was particularly heightened by seeing it with an orchestra I think it was because as well it's like god look at all those people mm-hmm. all of those people who were sitting there with their incredible skill giving their talent to us to bring this score alive mm-hmm. and it just made the whole kind of the the idea of making a film to me feels so it's so important and so special and um and it made me think god one of the things that really makes a film stand out for me is when there is and what is it it's undefinable how do you even pick out what it's for but it's a certain generosity in the spirit of the film where it's like here is a gift for you as an audience member this is my my gift to you so that you can i don't know either like gain a better understanding of what it fundamentally is to be a human or just have a really fucking great time for a couple of hours you know what i mean like i don't know it just it made me feel very very emotional and i uh, i'm really grateful that we went and did that and Mm -hmm. yeah i didn't get to see the exorcist on a big screen but you know i felt some feelings ed not that going to see the exorcist wouldn't have made me feel feelings (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm so sorry you had to feel your feelings i know i wasn't numb Now, um, dying to find out more about how the October Challenge went. But before we move on to that, uh, there's just a couple of other films that I wanted to mention very, very quickly. Um, So uh, over on the TikTok feed in the run up to Halloween, we each presented uh, five Halloween recommendations to people. Um, And I I hadn't seen any of yours at all. Uh, so let's remind ourselves of what yours were. So, uh... Uh, so I had um, I had uh, net- on Netflix there was Creep from 2014, which is uh, the Duplass brothers. Um, there was uh, on Disney Plus the Predator prequel Prey, uh, directed by Dan Trachtenberg. 
what else was there? What did I say? Oh, Event Horizon, Event which Horizon. was on Channel 4. <laughs> yeah. um, which is one of those films I've just ended up seeing a disproportionate number of times throughout my life. I don't know why. I don't know if it was just a period of time where it was always on. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what else was there, Ed? Uh, there was Cat People. Cat People, yes. The um, 1942 film, which was on iPlayer. And the other one was Bones and All. Oh, yes. The Luca Guadagnino yeah. film with Timothy Chalamet. Um, so, oh, amazing. So what did you see? So I hadn't seen any of them. My intention was to watch all five before I spoke to you next. Oh my god! I didn't quite manage it. I didn't quite manage no, it. No, because you've also got a life. To I've live, also got a life Ed. to live. I came. I came pretty close. I did sort of watch Cat People, but I, I was doing something else. I can't remember what. So I need to go back and rewatch that. So I don't count that as sure. one that I watched. Uh, I didn't watch Bones and All, which I'm looking forward to watching. I did watch the other three, however. So I watched Creep from Netflix. I watched Prey from Disney Plus and I watched Event Horizon, which is on Channel 4. Um, oh my God. I thoroughly enjoyed all three. If I had to pick a favourite of them, uh, it would be Creep, which I urge everybody to see. It It's just so, so deeply unnerving. And you, it's brilliant, you isn't it? You don't know what's going on right until the very, very end. It, it's really great. It's a film that it doesn't so much scare you as just make you profoundly uncomfortable mm. yeah. for a lot. It's so good, yeah. isn't it? Brilliant. It Ed? really is. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And it being a, a found footage movie, I did, I did come to that moment where I was just like, okay, you need to, you need to put the camera down and get out of this house. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, I always get that with a found footage movie, but. Actually, that that feeling didn't last too long um, because then it sort of it does something slightly different. Um, not long after I got that feeling. Will you be watching Creep Two? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Have you seen it? I have seen it. It took me a really long time um, mm. to watch it after I'd first seen Creep because I think I was just I was so frightened that it was going to be shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it certainly it, it does do something slightly different and mm-hmm. new and um, it does kind of it, it's worth watching it but it i mean cre- i just think creep is a bit of a masterpiece really so yeah. it, ca- it can't me- can't measure up you know it's fab my my hot takes on the other two uh, very quickly yeah event horizon absolutely bonkers isn't it thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed it what a great cast it's got as well i know what a great cast like sam neill and Lawrence fishburne sort of in the central roles but you've got uh, Jodie Richardson uh, Sean Pertwee Jason Isaacs yeah like, yeah what a, what a fab it, cast it's great and it's got a couple of really good horror set pieces the, oh, yeah. the one with the airlock mm-hmm. that's pretty good mm-hmm. yeah there's some really excellent set pieces and then at yeah. the end it is it is so bonkers mm-hmm. that it, you are it's like it is it's like a roller coaster yeah it is <laughs> it is I really liked it and Prey, I did enjoy. Uh, I would have liked it to have just been tonally a little bit harsher, a little bit crueler. Um, Ooh, yeah. Like, I felt very safe watching Prey. It was like a it was like a predator movie for a generation of people brought up on the MCU. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It, there was blood in it, but it's, it's it's not it's not really about it's not really about sort of violence and gore. What what I'm talking about? Because like if you look at something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I'm not suggesting it, it tries to go all out like that. Um, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you, there is very little violence, very little gore. Um, when the violence happens, it's sudden and you feel it. It's a tonal quality. Yeah, that the, I would like... Essentially, what I'm saying is I would like 
prey to have been going for an 18 certificate rather than the 15 certificate that it was going for and that it got. Yes, I, I totally agree. Is essentially what I'm saying. And I think it's probably because it's a sort of Disney movie. Uh, it's like a, it's a Disney property. Um, it probably wanted to appeal to a teenage market rather than a load of people who watched Predator when it first came out and were like, hooray! I absolutely know what you're saying. That being said, I had a thoroughly good time watching it. It's very well it's made. It's an enjoyable way to spend a couple of hours, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And there is an excellent dog in it. There is an excellent dog in it. <laughs> I'm really touched that you um, that you watch those, and I can't wait to talk to you about Bones and All. Oh yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's right near the top of my list for what to watch in the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I'm dying to know about the October challenge. How did it go? It was fine. Um, I was disappointed that I didn't manage to make my full 31, and part of that is because I'm also doing a film course at the same time, so I have to watch stuff for that. Mm-hmm. And there are only so many hours in the day, and I thought that there were going to be more horror films on my watch list from the course, ah. and actually. Actually, quite a lot of it, it wasn't so much horror. It's more just kind of um, weirdness rather Mm. than horror. So just to remind people, the challenge was uh, that you would watch 31 horror movies for the month of October. So essentially breaking down to a horror movie a day um, and my rule was that it had to be stuff that I'd never seen before that's right so that was it was an a, a attempt to catch up on classics that um, were missing in my kind of portfolio mm-hmm. uh, but also catch some exciting new stuff at the cinema which I did I did a good mix um, a good mix kind of since we last spoke there's uh, one film in particular that I'd really like to talk about mm-hmm. uh, and I finally watched An American Werewolf in London oh excellent <laughs> Oh, I loved it so much. It's so much fun. Oh God, it's so good. It's so funny. I think the thing that prompted me to put it onto my list was possibly listening to another horror podcast. I can't quite remember. Anyway, it was about the opening scene, Mm. the kind of the opening attack scene and how that is really excellent exercise in like a double bluff in horror, a kind of a jump scare in horror. Anyway, and I was like, ooh, okay, so I'll stick it on my list. Bearing in mind, I'm not that asked about werewolf movies Mm -hmm. generally, although I now really am. (laughs) (laughs) And it really makes me want to go back and watch The Wolfman, which is kind of the last of the universal horror movies. It's kind of the last one that they managed to put out before um, fire started to go out yeah. oh, I loved it so much it's so funny I had such a good time but it's so sad mm. it's so sad but I and I it completely tonally was not what I expected it to be and it's that thing again like we were talking about before like with the exorcist you go in with a kind of an idea of what you think it is mm. based on the few images you've seen in the zeitgeist and stuff and then it just isn't that at all and I think the only thing I'd ever seen before was the transformation sequence which is a really famous piece of yeah. um, special effect artistry and my god it's amazing isn't it it's it's so great um but yeah i i I loved it i really really loved it that was a real highlight and then yeah um i mean throughout the rest of the month the majority of the films that i saw came um as part of the film festival Mm -hmm. but yeah i'm I'm really disappointed that i didn't hit my 31 but next year next year Um, (laughs) but then yeah see the thing is if i allowed myself films that i have seen before i would easily have surpassed 31 uh, because i did rewatch cat people um and freaks and various other films um mm-hmm. but obviously i'd seen all of those before i tell you there's a couple of films that i want to talk about outside of my um yeah please uh, october 31 a couple of films that i've watched again for the um course that i'm doing mm-hmm. one of them is a new watch of a film that is a classic that i absolutely adored and the other one is a watch of a classic that i didn't understand the hype around okay <laughs> 
The first one is, have you ever seen the Joan Crawford Western Johnny Guitar? No. <laughs> I have not. It's great. I loved it. Um, and I particularly loved it. I mean, there's loads of Western stuff around it. Also, Joan Crawford's wardrobe in it. Mm-hmm. Get it to me now. It's amazing. And actually, last night I watched High Plains Drifter, yes. the Clint Eastwood Western. Uh, and it's just, there's, there's a parallel between the two films in that um, the kind of coercion and manipulation by one strong figure of an entire town mm-hmm. of men. And that happens in Johnny Guitar, um, Except uh, in Johnny Guitar, it's um, Mercedes McCambridge, uh, the actress playing the role of, I think she's called Kate or something. I can't remember. But um, And it was, when I saw it was Mercedes McCambridge, I was like, what? That little lady is the voice of the demon in The Exorcist? (laughs) No, no. she's extraordinary in it and mm. it's kind of uh, Joan Crawford plays a um, a woman who has built a hotel kind of on the outskirts of a town on the knowledge that there's going to be a railway railroad built through so she's kind of got prior warning and so she's trying to capitalize on that okay. um, and has infuriated a, a townswoman played by Mercedes McCambridge who kind of riles up all of the men from the town into this sort of witch hunt against Joan Crawford's character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends with a fantastic kind of confrontation between these two women. And I, it's called Johnny Guitar and it's a Western. So I did not expect it to be about two women. <laughs> <laughs> I just did not expect it. Um, and it's so great. It's got a title song by Peggy Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, the music in it is absolutely fantastic. The performances are amazing. It's really cool and slick. Joan Crawford is just a feast for the eyes. She's mm. so extraordinary yeah, in this. She's always good. And uh, yeah, it, it's um, it's just, it's real good. I really highly recommend catching Johnny Guitar if you can. And the other film that mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about uh, is a classic that I watched for the course, Planet of the Apes. Oh, right. The original. Yeah. I've not seen the original Planet of the Apes. Okay, it's on Disney Plus at the minute. Highly recommend, because um, it did make me want to rewatch the newer trilogy, um, especially ahead of the fourth one coming out next year, mm-hmm. because I know that you speak very highly of the, the new versions yes yeah the the matt reeves ones i think are really great i'm a little concerned about this one that's coming out next year yeah yeah i really didn't enjoy the original the makeup effects are amazing Mm. there's an enormous amount about it that is genuinely really enjoyable and i really get it i I get it uh but charlton heston is and i really was trying to i was like am i just thinking this because of context because of what he is as a person now and what i know of charlton heston set all that aside the character is loathsome Mm -hmm. and his performance is appallingly bad he's not a good actor (laughs) no he isn't and i'm in the opening i was a bit like oh this guy Mm. and then as you make your way through the film you know you get a long way through the film before any apes appear so you're kind of just stuck with these human characters and he's a real piece of shit again it's one of those films where i would i would like to watch it again because it was the first time i'd watched it and i knew what the twist was but i didn't know how we got there so Mm. it was that whole thing again of like like with psycho and richard watching psycho i I need to i'd like to watch it again now that i know how we get there Uh i know what the journey is so that i can actually think about the journey but i was just baffled i did not get it at all and as well a little bit like within 10 minutes of the apes appearing i was like i get it the apes are doing to us what we do to apes (laughs) (laughs) jesus christ do we need to make a whole film about it i I, I assumed you'd seen it actually so yeah i haven't seen any of the original films yeah i used to watch the tv series that was repeated on channel four i think when i was a kid 
Yeah, so I think it's probably time we've wanged on quite a lot. <laughs> so it's prob- we've been talking for a very long we time. We really have. <laughs> yeah, we should, we should probably uh, get to what we came here to talk about. <laughs> Watch this conversation be about 10 minutes long. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 I do have a concern that it might be. It's like, oh, it's weird. I tuned in to listen to them talk about this particular film and they just talked about The Shining for ages. <laughs> Ed, uh, what are we talking about? So this week we're talking about uh, the movie Mike cousin Vinny from 1992 it's a sort of uh, courtroom comedy I think is a, a fair description would you say I'd say so but I would say when I read that it was a courtroom comedy my heart fell slightly um but I do think that it's got substantial heart mm-hmm. it's a lot more than just a comedy yes uh, so the link to the film uh, was from the actor Fred Gwynn, who played Judd Crandall in last uh, last episode's offering Pet Cemetery. He in this plays uh, Judge Chamberlain Haller. What a name! A fabulous name. Uh, Spice of Love, Joy Hall of Fame worthy. I do wonder if maybe it might be. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Yeah. So that. So yeah. Fred Gwynn was the link from Pet Cemetery to my cousin Vinny. Uh, it's also his final screen performance. Yeah. It's probably time for a little time synopsis, isn't it? Yeah. So. <laughs> The film is 119 seconds, so that is 1 minute and 59 seconds is your time limit. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. So, um, the film opens with a couple of college lads, um, New Yorkers, um, who, uh, I can't remember their names, but it's the Karate Kid and Barry from Friends. <laughs> yeah. Um they're New Yorkers who are driving uh, back to college um, and the journey is taking them through rural Alabama. So um, they stop over to get gas and some groceries, um, set back off again and then get pulled over by the police. And through a tragic misunderstanding over a can of tuna, um, the boys end up accidentally confessing to murdering the clerk at the gas station um, and are slammed up in jail. Uh, I don't know if that's what you say on the streets. Is it slammed? <laughs> I got slammed up in the jail. I mean, they're facing um, death row, aren't they? They are facing death row. Um, they've got no money and um, they can't um, afford a hotshot lawyer. So they call in the Karate Kid's cousin, Vinny, played by Joe Pesci. Um, so Joe Pesci turns up in rural Alabama from New York with his fiance, uh, Mona Lisa, um, in tow. She's played by um, Marissa Tomei. Tomei, Tomei. We've got this thing again from last week. Tomei, I think. Tomei. I'm going to look up exactly how to do that. Um, So they rock up in town and it is a proper fish out of water these kind of New Yorkers turn up in rural Alabama and immediately fall foul of the locals. Um, they've he's got um, Vinny is a lawyer who's got no courtroom experience, no trial experience. He's only just passed his bar exam and he took a lot of times to pass it. Um, and it's kind of he's sort of an underdog who's no one's got any faith in him. He rubs all the locals up the wrong way. It's looking for ages like he's going to make an absolute shit show of this case and the kids are going to e- get executed but in a true underdog fashion he overcomes it all and it turns out after really fucking up the first few rounds of this trial process he is an absolute wizard and um through his kind of fast talking skills and his knowledge and all of this stuff he manages but basically they win the case (laughs) it's i could go beat by beat all the way through it but let's talk about more of the plot points as we go um that was two minutes and ten seconds that was real good go i know but i didn't say a lot of stuff (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I thought I thought that was well, a, no, a the... successful um, synopsis. In terms of the kind of the beats of the film, it's fairly standard sort of structure. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the kind of the um, oh, like the plan seems to be going well, and then there's a major setback when the the uh, prosecution call a surprise witness, and it all looks like it's going to be terrible. And then there's the last final push where everything turns out well. So it's kind of fairly formulaic. And in that respect, I felt quite comfortable watching the film because I knew that it was all going to come right because the film especially you know that the opening shot of the film where it's like um it's got that fun music and it's the fun car driving down the fun road yeah. and you're like this film this film's not going to execute two kids no no <laughs> like, it's it, we're going to be all right it's, it's more of a more of a romp than that isn't it it's uh, yeah exactly it's yeah, good yeah. good time movie a little bit of housekeeping i would love some housekeeping please thank you okay lovely so yeah my cousin Vinny was released on the 13th of march 1992 uh, it's directed by jonathan lynn um, the English writer who is best known as the co-creator of Yes Minister alongside Anthony Jay. I saw that when I was looking it up. What a weird... Like, that, I was not expecting Yes Minister to come up that, that when, was, I, when I Googled this guy. That was one of the reasons that I picked it. So when... Because as you know, I didn't know anything about this movie. I'd never heard of it. Um, and I just sort of happened upon it looking at Fred Gwynn's uh, CV. And was like, oh, what's that? And saw that it was quite well thought of. And then I saw that Jonathan Leonard directed it. And I was like, well, it might have something about it. He's also known as the writer-director of Clue and Nuns on the Run, starring Robbie Coltrane. <laughs> um, <laughs> another sort of crime caper, isn't it, that one? I've never seen Nuns on the Run. Neither I have I. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll have a, I must have a look. It was written by Dale Lorna, who also uh, is one of the producers on it. Uh, he's most known for having written Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. The other producer on it is Paul Schiff, um, who <laughs> uh, his CV includes the uh, Rat Pack Western classic Young Guns and uh, <laughs> and the the, uh, the Jennifer Lopez rom com Made in Manhattan. Um, oh, mate, have you ever seen <laughs> Made in Manhattan? I have not, and I hope I'm not going to have to next time. <laughs> it's one of those films again that I've seen a disproportionate number of times. Like I didn't, I never meant to watch it. I didn't particularly enjoy it and somehow I've seen it like six times. I don't oh, know mate. why it's happened. I've got oh, films God. like that. I've got films like that. <laughs> yeah, and I think everybody does. Um, the cinematographer on it is Peter Denning, who uh, is somebody that I think would be interesting to you particularly, uh, having been the cinematographer on Evil Dead 2, uh, the second and third screen movies. He's also worked a fair bit with David Lynch on Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive. Weirdly, also uh, the... Uh, first Austin Powers movie. Weird CV. Real weird. <laughs> There's another film on his CV that actually links several of these crew, and that's uh, the British Rick Mail comedy Drop Dead Fred. It's such a weird one for for so many mm. people to be connected to on this. I don't really get it, but we'll come to that in a moment. It was edited by the team of Stephen E. Rivkin and Tony Lombardo. They've got very, very different careers going from this path. They go in two very different directions. So uh, Stephen E. Rivkin has gone on to make um, edit movies like uh, the Avatar movies and the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. So those sort of big blockbusters. Uh, whereas Tony Lombardo, he edited Uncle Buck and uh, Doctor Doolittle 3. Yeah, you don't really need to go much further with his CV, to be honest. Production design uh, by Victoria Paul. Yeah, she was production designer on uh, the 1997 movie Breakdown with Kurt Russell about a couple that break down in the middle of nowhere. It's a, it's a bit of a thriller, and I sort of highlighted that because there's probably production design elements that cross over with, uh, with this. So that's yeah, sort of the one yeah. that I would highlight there. The art direction... 
the team of Michael Risso and Rando Schmuck. Michael Risso. This is his first film as art director. Uh, he then went on to do Body of Evidence and also Vanilla Sky. And uh, Rando Schnook, this is his Ooh. second film after Drop Dead Fred. Set decoration by Michael Searton, who won an Oscar for his work on Gandhi. He also went on to be the set decorator on Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile. Costume designer, Carol Wood. Uh, this is her last credit. She'd also costumed uh, Down by Law, the Jim Jarmusch film, and again, Drop Dead Fred. And finally, the music, uh, scored by Randy Edelman who uh, did the score for Ghostbusters 2 and also Drop Dead Fred. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was made for a budget of $11 million and it took at the box office a quite stonking $64.1 million, um, which mm. nobody involved in the production expected to do, expected it to be anything like that successful. Yeah, really interesting. It also won one Oscar, Marissa Tomei, uh, for Best Supporting Actress. And... To be honest with you, she's fab. Uh, would, you, Cheers. would you like to know who she beat out and for what? I would love to. Um, what year was it, sorry? Uh, 1992. So this would have been the Academy Awards that took place in 1993. Yeah, I have absolutely no chance of trying to guess any of these. <laughs> um, no, no, the, I would have no chance either. Uh, so yeah, Marissa Tomei won for Best uh, best Supporting Actress, uh, beating out Joan Plowright for Enchanted April, uh, Judy Davis for Husbands and Wives, Miranda Richardson for Damage, and Vanessa Redgrave for Howard's End. I've only seen two of those. I would love for you to watch Damage. Okay. I would love to talk to you about it. <laughs> it sounds like it was a traumatic viewing experience. It was. No, it's not traumatic. Oh, okay. It's just, it's one of those films, you know, you can't work out whether it's sort of genius or like really, really terrible. Ed, I need you to watch it so that we can discuss. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> just to round this out, I'm just going to run through the cast very quickly. Uh, we've got Joe Pesci um, in a sort of rare leading role for Joe Pesci uh, yeah. as Vinny Gambini. Ralph Macchio, as you mentioned, the Karate Kid, as his cousin Bill Gambini. Uh, Marissa Tomei as Mona Lisa Vito. Uh, Mitchell Whitfield as Stan Rothstein. That's Barry from. Yeah, sorry, uh, have I just pronounced that wrong? Because he does get cross in one of the courtroom scenes. Yeah, I just, I've just, I've just said it wrong. Yeah, sorry. Mitchell Whitfield as Stan Rothstein. Fred Gwynn as Judge Chamberlain Haller. The marvelous Lane Smith as Jim Trotter the Third. He will always be Perry White from uh, the Adventures of Superman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, Austin Pendleton as John Gibbons. Bruce McGill as uh, Sheriff Farley. Maury Chaikin as Sam Tipton. Pauline Myers as Constance Riley. Rainer Shayna as Ernie Crane. James Rebhorn as George Wilbert. He's one of those great um, that guy actors, uh, James Rebhorn. He shows up in all sorts of stuff. And finally, Chris Ellis as uh, JT, the... Uh, Paul playing Barfly. Uh, did you had you heard of had you heard of, the, heard of the film before? Did you know anything about it going in? I literally had heard the title, but I didn't know right. a single other thing about it. And when you said we're watching my cousin Vinny, mm-hmm. I couldn't even picture what type of film that might look like. Sure. Um, <laughs> so yeah, what you you'd never heard of it, had you? Yeah, no, we, we were pretty much in the same boat uh, yeah. with this. And yeah, um, yeah and what, what did you think? I. I can't tell you how much pleasure it gives me to say I really enjoyed it. I loved it, Ed. I absolutely loved <laughs> I had it. It's such a good time. I laughed all the way through. All the way through. Yeah. I think the performances are fab. It's so funny, yeah. but again, like I think a largely in part to Joe Pesci's performance, it's really got heart yeah. and soul and it means something. It's it's talking about something that matters yeah. and is so warm and so funny and charm I, just, I loved it i am so grateful to you for choosing it because it's gone on to my like yeah i'll watch this i'll watch this every year yeah i i, 
could quite happily just put it on. I think it's uh, yeah. If mm-hmm. if it's on the telly, I will watch it. I think that it's great. Or like on every level, mm-hmm. I think it's a cracking script. Mm-hmm. I think that the performances are absolutely fantastic, and I think that like I didn't particularly notice the direction, which to me says it was really good. Sure. <laughs> I think the, and the direction of it is very sort of workmanlike. It's it's straight down the line, gets the job done, tells me a story in an efficient way. There are a couple of times where the cinematography i go oh that's an unnecessary dutch angle <laughs> it's like it's like there, there are a couple of occasions particularly early on like when um, like a policeman will walk in the room and be threatening and it's like oh we've got to put the camera on a jaunty angle for this <laughs> which i was yeah. a bit come on um, yeah yeah but yeah as yeah. criticisms go that's pretty pretty light it's not preoccupied with anything fancy or tricky mm. it's like we've got a quality story and we're gonna tell it to you yeah and i really i think that the uh, well, you mentioned the costume designer and i think that she has had an enormous amount of fun mm. with um, Vinny and Mona Lisa particularly. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah there's, 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 a, there's a couple of costumes to highlight. One, like, obviously that ridiculous suit that he that he shows up in that sort of was it burgundy it is it's a it's a 70s burgundy velvet morning suit yeah it's a te- it's a te- it, he looks like a magician <laughs> he does. it's it's extraordinary but what i really love about that is that like it is funny mm-hmm. but it is it's a moment of comedy that is used to underpin a really important point yes that the film is making yeah. and it's like and, and and the way joe pesci plays that moment mm-hmm. I kept thinking about how much less good this film would be if it wasn't Joe Pesci. Mm-hmm. I was just like, thank goodness that this this is Joe Pesci playing this part. Yeah, sure. um, because you can imagine, I don't know, and I can't think of any actors, <laughs> but you know, like, I don't know, you can imagine like Jim Carrey having to do a role oh, where he's, he's he drops his suit in the mud and has to hire something and comes in dressed stupidly and how he would perform mm that and like joe pesci he is he's just such a class act yeah he 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 walks in the room he, he plays it straight and what i love about that moment yeah as you say is that it it's not just haha he's wearing a funny suit it's actually a really pivotal moment in in the in the sort of narrative i mean we'll come on to it in a bit but it's a moment where the, the narrative really shifts where Vinny's relationship with the judge and the courtroom shifts mm. yeah so it's it, it it's really satisfying to see it used in that way um do you know do you know what the other costume was that i wanted to highlight go on there is <laughs> when they go out to the the woods to have a night in the woods to try and get away from the noise of the of the town oh my god and marissa tomei is in that insane floral one piece thing yeah <laughs> it's mag- magnificent I think it's also a film it's a film that's about class mm-hmm. in some ways sure. and our how judgmental we can be about people for their like the way they dress mm. and all of that stuff and it's like so it's really layered for yeah. at first glance you could write off as just a slightly daft mm. kind of courtroom comedy it's got so much going on yeah. and so much to say it's interesting um you sort of bring bringing up class and sort of attitudes to class because Vinny and 
Mona Lisa and um, mm. where where they're from are probably quite sort of down on there as a couple of Italian-American loud... Loud working class Italian-Americans yeah. who are kind of... Scr- who have to fight for every single penny yeah. that they earn. And there's also this thing about throughout the film it's sort of under underpinned by this... Um, the ongoing debate that Vinny is having with the judge about what he wears to court. Yes. And I think it's a fantastic question. Mm. It's like this these sort of seeming interlopers who are coming in to a system Mm -hmm. and against everyone's expectations are being fantastic at the thing but unconventional and it's like hang on why is what I'm wearing anything to do Mm. with the argument I'm making yeah I think I think there's there's also an interesting thing where so you've you've got these two um, working class Italian Americans coming into the legal system where they are sort of surrounded by Mm. um, you know quite well-to-do people in terms of the judge mm. and the prosecutor what's his tits the third he's got yeah, he's got, he's, he's yeah, he's got the, a ridiculous yeah, he's name isn't he yeah. fabulous name. but that is also it's the legal system in alabama where there is also an attitude and derision towards so there's a real conflict there anyway mm. between Vinny's sort of don't you look down on me chippiness that is part of just his nature and also the don't you sneer at us attitude of the people in Alabama towards yeah. damn Yankees from the north. So you've you've got two sets of people with the almost identical gripes with each other, which is really interesting. It is so interesting. I can feel us spiralling off into just a general excited, happy gabble about mm. how much we love this film. Uh, let's have some structure. Yeah, well, no, I, <laughs> no, I think I think. <laughs> I think the I think the first place to sort of look, Vinny and Mona Lisa. I think they are central to it, particularly Vinny. I think the best way of looking at this movie is through Vinny, because he is yes. at the heart of everything. It's all about ev- mm. all of the characters' relationships with him. He makes everything happen. But I don't think he could really achieve any of what he does without Mona Lisa. So let's have a look. Let's have yeah. a little, little look at that relationship first. So when they first arrive. They sort of they pull into town in their convertible. The, the roof is up, but it is a convertible, yeah. and they they draw quite a lot of looks from the townsfolk, and then they get yeah. stuck in the mud, and the mud will come back later. But why? There, there are a couple of things that will come back later on during the trial that I didn't pick up on as things that had been planted to come back later, which made them so so satisfying. We'll come to them shortly. Yeah, so they they, they get out of the car and they're stuck in the mud and they're immediately they're bickering. We understand what what their relationship is with each other. If if I if I have a criticism of the movie, um it's that I don't really believe them as uh fiancés. Oh do you not? No, I don't I don't. I think I think Joe Pesci and Marista may have got really great chemistry i just don't think it's romantic or sexual chemistry and it's partly i mean pesci's got 20 years on her and then some yeah it's, yeah it's partly that so when she kisses him you're like ooh, <laughs> yeah he's he's punching way above his weight in a lot of ways so i guess my question is what do the characters each get out of the relationship yeah it's interesting that that you say i think because i've just come off the back of not that long since having watched casino and um, watching joe pesci mm. managed to uh, get it on with sharon stone as well sure. i do believe them mm-hmm. their relationship is filled with warmth yes and love and support and mm-hmm. i think that there is also a both of those characters represent hidden depths mm-hmm. so marissa tomei obviously she's an absolute stunner she's so beautiful yeah. incredibly like sexy beautiful mm-hmm. woman and in this film she is a uh, a mechanic yeah. and an expert in cars like not just an expert in cars like better than the guy from the FBI yeah. <laughs> expert and part of that is to do with she's underestimated mm-hmm. because 
if you look at it, you'd think you're beautiful. And when they say, what's your job? And she's like, oh, I'm an out of work hairdresser. Yes. It's like, oh, you're so you're a working class Italian American, beautiful woman who's an out of work hairdresser. Yeah. The, the, this is the picture I have yeah. of you as a character. It's like, no, no, she's also an expert mechanic. She also knows almost as much as Joe Pesci does about the legal system mm-hmm. and tells him things. They are so smart, both of them. Well, yeah, I mean, Vinny, need, Vinny needs to read some things. <laughs> Because she, <laughs> she she she's the one who goes through the big book of Alabama law, um and and legal procedure and yeah and reads yeah. the things that he needs to know. What Vinny needs to learn over the course of the film is he needs to learn to accept other people's help, um and in particular Mona Lisa's help. But then and I think Joe Pesci, you know, in the same way that kind of hidden depth thing, you know, he ter- they turn up looking the way they do, sounding the way they do, mm. um and against everyone's expectations have each got their own hidden depths, hidden knowledge and all that stuff. And part of that is you would look at them and think, what is this beautiful young woman doing with this middle-aged guy? Mm-hmm. And actually it's, you know, it's to do with their personalities. Yeah. And that I think that their personalities, like you say, have an enormous amount of chemistry. I love that exchange. You know, when she's wearing her extraordinary floral bodysuit, yes. she comes up with all these things that she's griping about. She's like, you said we were going to get married when you, when you first case. And now it's looking like you're not going to win your first case and he's like thank you for for saying all of this right now and he goes off on her about like I've got this on my shoulders I've got this I'm worried about I've got this and this and this and this for um, for you to and she's like I appreciate that this is probably not the best time to bring <laughs> up. I love that they've got friction, mm-hmm. but she is not a shrew no. and he is not a clueless oaf. Yeah. They are much more complicated than that and that makes them much more believable and gives them much more heart as a couple. Yeah. But I do I do think it could just as easily have been a brother and a sister and they could have been sharing a twin room because they've got no money. Mm-hmm. I would buy you know? I I would buy them more as brother and sister, personally. But I absolutely, absolutely get what you're saying. I appreciate it. I didn't entirely buy it mm-hmm. when he kind of upset her so much that she then was like refusing to look at him in the mm. box at the end when she yeah. was giving testimony. I kind of, I thought like this woman is too savvy. Mm-hmm. She's too switched on. She gets it enough mm-hmm. to be this petty about uh, ultimately a case that will decide the fate of her fiance's cousin's life yeah there are lives on the line and i don't believe that this woman would be so petty about it in this instance like Mm -hmm. i kind of that was probably the only part of the film that stuck a bit for me that felt to me like a little bit of something that was put in there to be comical but didn't entirely land yeah um so yeah let's uh let's move on with the two boys themselves as you say the karate kid and barry are friends um yeah I still don't know what their actual character names are. I've got no idea. They are Bill and Stan. Yeah. yeah. So they're not they're not, they're not <laughs> names that will stick in the mind. They're the Karate Kid and Barry are friends. So. <laughs> I tell you, hmm. um, I was relieved when Vinny showed up and kind of took over the heavy lifting in terms of the kind of screen time. Oh, sure. I didn't find the Karate Kid very appealing in this. I think because he, he was up against, um, I know that his first name's Mitchell. Can't remember what his second name is. Barry are friends. friends. Yeah. I loved Barry Off Friends. I thought Barry Off Friends was real good in this film. I really enjoyed his performance in it. Um, I found him really compelling. I enjoyed it every time he was on screen. Whereas the Karate Kid, I was just a bit like, you could you could replace this with a cardboard cutout sure, <laughs> of a person. I, I'm a little more forgiven than that. I think at the Karate Kid, I think um, Ralph Macchio has 
the harder job of the two because he's more the straight man. It's not so much that he didn't do good acting. I mm-hmm. think his acting was absolutely fine. It's nothing to do with that. It's more of just his kind of um, his draw on screen. You know, when you're just like, I, I don't want to watch you. Yeah, I don't. I didn't want to watch him. Oh, that's interesting. Personal preference. Yeah. That's just my personal taste. I didn't find him particularly pleasing to watch in the Karate Kid either. To be honest, I think I just maybe I don't like him very much. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's not. Sorry, Ralph. He's not the screen presence for you. <laughs> I'm sure he is listening. I'm sure he is. Uh, yeah, no. I think uh, so. When we first meet them, they arrive at this uh, this gas station in their car. They've been sort of on this little road trip from college and going around the shop just picking stuff up. And like, uh, Karate Kid puts this can of tuna in his pocket, and you think, "Oh, it's going to be a problem," because the camera makes sure we see it. <laughs> and I find it so endearing the uh, the conversation they have about the can of tuna when he finds the can of tuna in his pocket he's like oh god yeah. Barry from Venz is like we're in Alabama we could we could die for this here it laces in quite nicely sets it all up how the misunderstanding could take place because it sets up this sort of paranoia and like he's sort of joking but he's kind of not joking Mm -hmm. of like actually no we we could die um if we fuck up in alabama it makes the misunderstanding completely plausible yeah completely and they they're sort of they're debating going back aren't they and then the police pull them over and barry from friends is freaking out Mm -hmm. and i just i find that yeah really endearing and then you go into that whole section where they they just accidentally confess to murder um i enjoy because later in the film the first time they see Vinny when Vinny comes to see them in the cell and Barry from Friends and Vinny have that exchange which is right on the knife edge of dark comedy yeah it It, yeah, it, it almost veers over into crass, but it but it doesn't. And I tell you what it is. It's something that you talk about with Father Ted oh, yeah. and the comedy in Father Ted. Weird. I know that's a weird parallel to draw, but it's to do with a naivety. Mm. It isn't a lewd thing. No. It is entirely misunderstanding and, um, and naivety. And it's, it's because we've already had Barry from Friends set up as a character who is just deeply paranoid yeah. and kind of, and catastrophizing. Yeah. I think it's set up really well and as I was watching that I mean sorry for context for any for listeners who haven't seen it when Vinny first comes to interview the boys in jail he speaks to Barry from Friends first and Barry from Friends has already kind of made it clear that he is absolutely terrified that they're going to get put in a cell with someone who's then going to rape them and so when Vinny turns up just through purely through and it's clever script work it makes it seem like they're having a conversation where Vinny is like you should be thanking me (laughs) for turning up and all this stuff and the kid's like I don't want to do this yeah well it's it's, it's an issue because yeah they're they're on completely different pages aren't they they're just they're just having two completely different conversations what I like is that sort of Barry from Friends starts off in a place of like oh my god this this is gonna happen and oh this is awful and actually at the end of that conversation he properly stands up for himself and he's like no I'm not gonna yeah. do it yeah 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 at which point Vinny's lost his temper with the whole conversation because it makes no sense to him and he's there um, working pro bono to help yeah. him out and get them off a murder charge and he's just like alright I'm not even gonna deal with you I'm just gonna deal with my cousin which also um, he's driven from New York to Alabama which let's not forget is like the the same as driving across the whole of Europe yeah <laughs> so like <laughs> um, sorry just jumping back um, mm, to when they're they're looking at the cans in the 
the shop. I also really love that they are looking for the cheapest can. Yeah. I don't know if they're like playing a game with each other or what. It feels whatever, like it, I just really it? love it. It does feel like it because I think as well that's a really wonderful, it's quite a charming little bit of character, but it's also a really good way of saying, okay, you think, you might think that these two kids in their convertible on their way back to college, you might think that they've got some money, but without them having to go like put a line in the script of like, gee, um, I didn't know how I was going to get to pay my fees this semester or something yeah. heavy handed it's like no they're, they're um, haggling over a penny and that's I think that's quite a slick way of giving us some character context to set us up for everything that happens yeah. it's yeah really clever scripts I like it a lot yeah me too <laughs> the, the very next thing after so they clear up that misunderstanding in, in the jail cell and then they actually <laughs> have this first proper conversation where everybody's on the same page and that's when yeah. poor Vinny has to come clean about his lack of experience I love this scene they assume he's big shot trial lawyer like he supposedly passed his exam six years ago what's he been doing oh nothing he's been studying <laughs> he just goes studying yeah to pass the bar I mean there are moments in the film when Vinny definitely loses his confidence and gets shit mm-hmm. up by stuff that first meeting with the judge and that whole first section where they go actually start to go through the legal process and he's not wearing the right clothes and he's got to lie to the judge about his experience and he and it actually is the final element of Jeopardy in the whole film is this thing question over his name he gives his name and then he doesn't check out and so he gives a different name and then it's the name of an actual lawyer and then it turns out he's just died and then um, he's like oh no 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 you miswrote it it's a different name this thing of Vinny is like a sort of a grifter but it's sort of he's not a grifter the system being stupid is what forces him to have to kind of be juggling all of these lies Mm. and twists of the truth and it's like actually if they just let him practice He's clearly very good at it. Yeah. It's like it's um it really reminded me of Erin Brockovich. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's a great comparison. Just because she dresses a certain way and talks a certain way, the system is fucked. Mm-hmm. It's all the other stuff around the job of being a lawyer mm-hmm. that Vinny is not succeeding at. Yeah. But actually the job of being a lawyer, he is unbelievably good at. Apart from when he really shits up. Well, <laughs> well yeah, so because <laughs> it, it doesn't when he when he gets there, he doesn't know really anything. The judge holds him in contempt of court a few times and on one of those occasions uh, on the way out he has a conversation with Mona Lisa who's just like are you are you just fucking this case up and he goes no I'm just I'm learning what to do learning as I go because she's like didn't they teach you this at law school and he's like no because what the system dictates Mm. is that you pass the bar and that teaches you about the law but then you get taken on by a law firm and they're the ones who tell you about how to conduct yourself yeah, in a courtroom yeah, yeah. and it's because of because of how he comes across and how he presents himself there's no law firm in New York would take him on except yeah. for like, ambulance chases because that's what he's been doing is personal injury law yes. isn't it one of the things that I really love about Vinny and Mona Lisa they are not willing to compromise fundamentally who they are as people in order to kind of fit in with a system when it doesn't really make any sense you know when um, the judge orders him to come in a suit yes. and then the next time he turns up not in a suit and the judge is like I told you to come in a suit and he was like oh my god were you being serious (laughs) (laughs) his response to this request rather than making him look like a fool it makes the audience question 
the validity of the judge asking request, him. Yeah. You're so aligned with Vinny yeah. that you find yourself asking the same questions as him. I was worried briefly that I would get that kind of uncomfortable, cringy feeling of the underdog being made made fun of. Mm. But he manages to spin it so that you don't feel like he's being made fun of. No. You feel like he is correctly questioning a stupid system. Yeah. When he when he makes the concession the the, the third time when he shows up. So uh, Mona Lisa has had his suit cleaned, but he's sort of thrown it out of the car not knowing what it is and it's ended up getting covered in mud so he's had to <laughs> he's had to go and get a new suit because there's nowhere in the town that'll do that'll clean it in time for his appearance in court he says the place that you can buy a suit from everybody there's got the flu so it's closed so he's had to go to a yeah. second hand shop and that is how he's ended up with this red velvet suit that he shows up yeah. and the judge immediately thinks he's taking the piss and actually that moment as I was saying earlier it's a real shift in, in their relationship his relationship with the judge because he says he says no I had a suit you've seen the suit that I had it got covered in mud because as we know this town is just mud everywhere as they say really yeah, right near yeah. the start we're known for our mud around here Chekhov's mud Chekhov's mud yeah we've got we've got <laughs> Chekhov's mud and Chekhov's grits but we'll talk about Chekhov's grits <laughs> shortly and he's, he says uh, so I, I had a choice to make either I wear the leather jacket which I know you hate or mm-hmm. I wear this ridiculous thing and it's 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 a beautiful moment between Joe Pesci and Fred Gwynn of just sort of mutual, all right, fine. And the judge goes, are you on drugs? He tells the judge this ridiculous long story about how he has ended up wearing this suit. Mm. And he, the punchline of that is, I'm wearing this for you. Yes. I'm wearing right, this yeah. stupid suit for you. It's the way that's worded that makes you feel the kind of exasperation. Mm-hmm. But it also isn't look at Vinny, the character, being a bit of a fuck up and a bit of a shambles. It's look at what your restrictive and pointless rules have brought me to. Like, this is your fault. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because we need to see the judge developing a respect for Mm -hmm. Vinny that brings him to that point at the end when he is allowing everything to be done and said in the trial that happens. Because there's, it could so easily have been a judge who was just like I've decided that I hate you because I'm a snob mm-hmm. and I'm going to make life difficult for you regardless yeah. and that could have just happened the whole way through and yeah. the, that judge could have not been a character he could have been a talking yeah. prop well what, what the what the story requires is for them both to give way and this is the moment mm. of that where they then there can yeah, be some yeah. sort of understanding in the future oh yeah it's because I just yeah I, yeah. <laughs> yeah and that first day in court because we praised Fred Gwynn to the roof um for his work on Pet yeah. Cemetery. I think he's wonderful in this too. He's great. Like just his his accent work. Pet Cemetery. He was like full New England, and now we're right back down deep south. I don't know where. I don't know where he was <laughs> from actually. Where, where's Fred Gwynn from? No, I don't know where he's from. The in terms of all the characters going on a journey, mm-hmm. and that journey really meaning something. I feel like the journey the judge goes on really means something. Yeah, yeah he, he comes out of it changed. The next loudmouth Italian American who shows up in his court, he'll look at slightly differently. <laughs> Um, Absolutely. He was he was from New York, <laughs> uh, ironically enough, Fred Gwynn. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I did feel a bit after that scene, I did feel a little bit of that kind of that awful gut-wrenching feeling of like being embarrassed for someone. And it's like you're it's it's like watching a car crash and not being able to do anything to help anybody. Yeah. It is really uncomfortable yeah, that first scene. So he he arrives in court and he meets um the prosecutor played by 
Lane Smith, who immediately mistakes him for the defendant, um, and, and all the way through. Oh, and there's there's the whole thing with uh, with how do you plead? I love that. And Vinny just he he won't just say guilty or not guilty. There's a whole yeah, yeah. there's a whole stream of stuff that that he comes out with. He meets the judge before he that, does. Yeah, he? he does in the judge's office. And um, because there's also that wonderful thing where the judge the judge is like, "Don't think you can come here with your fancy New York high flying yeah. lawyer ideas." And Vinny's like, "Don't worry, there won't be any of that." <laughs> <laughs> yes it's like Vinny he's, he's got a bollocking before he's even done or before said done anything, anything. Yeah. yeah he's like he's like a naughty boy isn't he <laughs> he is like a naughty yeah. boy and he, there is a slightly kind of like naughty boy at the back of the class feeling like he's always sitting on the table yeah yeah he is yeah he's always he's always got he's, he's sitting up on a table with his legs swinging it would be so easy for him to kind of fall in line and and play the part of a lawyer and he just won't he won't compromise and i love that and so you've got that that first day in court where he gets a very public bollocking um yeah. and gets held in contempt of court because because <laughs> the the judge the judge gets exasperated with him and says that the next words I want to hear out of your mouth, are either guilty or not guilty. And if I don't hear that, you, I'm going to hold yeah. you in contempt. And uh, Vinny, <laughs> Vinny walks away going, yeah, I think I understand. <laughs> to which the judge replies, no, you don't. Now you're in contempt. And the whole time, the prosecutor is laughing behind his hand. It's it's it is like school. I love as well that later there's that really gorgeous story that Joe Pesci tells about how he became a lawyer. Mm. Like him and the um the prosecutor are having a bit of a, a chat um in the prosecutor's office. Um Joe Pesci tells this lovely story about how the the reason he became a lawyer is because he was taken to court for like a parking fine or something, and he ended up arguing so convincingly as a defendant that the judge told him to go to law school. Yeah. That's so delightful. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he, he's clearly a natural at, at that element of it. The element he's not so good at is is the sort of is the graft of knowing what's what and mm. and how to do the different things. And that's one of the things that he needs Mona Lisa for. There's that scene quite early on. It's maybe even on like the first day, the first day where he's really fucked up in court, and he goes and meets Mona Lisa, and she talks about how she got shafted for two hundred dollars, mm. and he's like, "What do you mean? Let's fucking sort this out." And so immediately after you've seen him fuck up in court, mm. you see him operating in the real world and you're like this is what's going to win in the case mm-hmm. you see a demonstration of his skills kind of out of context because he go he mar- goes marching into this pool hall to confront this guy and argues a fantastically compelling case for why he's going to kick his ass yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is why he has such faith in himself. This is why Mona Lisa has such faith mm-hmm. in him. This is why we, the audience, now are to- feel totally safe. Yeah. What I, what I love in that scene also is while while he's arguing his case with this with this guy who's shafted Mona Lisa for two hundred dollars, he's also sort of shilling for work because there's a guy in a neck brace, yeah. and he's just like. <laughs> Some, somebody hit you he's like no I fell oh. and then later on I, I can't remember exactly what it is but it's like oh, we... yeah yeah he's like were you on did you fall on their property or yours yeah that's right yeah. and he's like mine and he's like ah shit yeah <laughs> <laughs> she's very funny but he's got he's got a, a few sort of interactions with people in the town um, so there's that uh, subplot over the, the $200 which sort of keeps recurring and keeps recurring the sort of rule of three. Um, it comes back a couple of times. So the second time he sees him, he's like, oh, I've got you 200 pounds. Now we'll have a fight. And Vinny's like, no, I'm pretty sure that's just a load of ones with a 20 wrapped around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is like, and then the third time is like, he fans <laughs> it out. He's got the $200 there. And <laughs> Vinny just jumps on him. He kind of, he does like a Superman arm 
and punches him in the face, but it's like he's taking it off. Is it a punch? Because it doesn't look like a punch. The sound effect is definitely a punch. It is a punch. It's supposed to be a punch. Because it's when, you know, when, um, so, I mean, again, another kind of subplot, but that we'll come on Mm. to is this recurring thing of wherever Vinny and Mona Lisa stay, they're woken up by something in the middle of the night. It's the morning of the trial Mm -hmm. and the night after they've gone and slept in the car in the middle of nowhere Mm. and got stuck in the mud. And so they arrive back in town and it's like Vinny's got half an hour to get showered and get to the courthouse and um, Mona Lisa's gone off mm. to get him a suit and um, and the guy comes towards him and is like I've got the $200 let's have the fight and Vinny's just like mate no get out my face I can't deal with this now and he's like what's the matter are you chicken I can't remember what yeah. he says but he's like he goads him in some way and it's just as he's walking past him he doesn't even really stop he jumps and punches him in the face Gets the money off him and just keeps walking. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Yeah. It's so funny. It's very, very funny. Yeah, the the other interaction that I really like with the town is uh, the diner scene, where mm. it's quite early on in their time there, and um, he and Mona Lisa go for breakfast at this diner, and it's <laughs> it's pure fish out of water stuff. It like <laughs> they uh, they order breakfast, and the guy immediately puts on like this enormous block of lard before that the guy's gone like oh do you want to have a look at the menu and they look at the menu and the menu just says breakfast lunch and dinner on it and that and i love it because you don't see the menu reveal you just see Vinny and mona lisa kind of looking at it really thoughtful and he's like "Mm, what do you think breakfast she's like "Mm, yeah breakfast and you see the menu yes that is that is very funny um and they're sitting there. Oh, do, you've heard about the cholesterol problem in the country? I was like, nope. <laughs> um, and then they're presented with a plate of grits, which I've referred to as Chekhov's grits. Now, this this delighted me so much because it was presented to me in such a subtle way as part mm-hmm. of just sort of fish out of water comedy. I did not expect the grits to come back in any meaningful way whatsoever. Yeah. And when they did, yeah. in a key scene later on in court, when Vinny starts mm. to reprove himself, it was so satisfying to me. It was so pleasing to me because yeah. it hadn't been like signposted like, hey, grits, it takes 20 minutes to cook some grits. It wasn't like the can of tuna. It wasn't like the it can of tuna, like no. It like a... Zoom yeah. in, zoom in, you know. Yeah, which is um, interesting as a sort of filmmaking thing, because like that early in a film with a can of tuna, you do want like to make sure that uh, everybody's seen that, so we're fine. Because when mm-hmm. when you get into um, when you first sit down to watch a movie, you do a little bit need to tune in. You know what I mean? Yes, you do. But also that that the thing about the grits and the thing about the mud and that thing about um, Vinny needing to compromise and meet them halfway, all of that is also to do with him learning the kind of culture of that town. Yeah. And a less clever film, there would have been a whole section where Vinny needs to learn that he needs to get the jury on side mm-hmm. and he needs to appeal to the jury and understand but he we don't need to see him realize that he just knows that already yeah. and he just he just does it and mm. actually it, it it kind of it makes Vinny more appealing as a character because it, it gives you this feeling that Vinny whoever he's talking to manages to meet them halfway ingratiate himself get used to their culture kind of like get it's it's part of his sort of bonhomie <laughs> as a character the other thing about that moment in the diner is he he asks how you make the grits because he's he's genuinely interested you know and it's it's not just uh, this is weird he is curious he asks the questions you know what i mean he's kind of um both him and mona lisa actually are a kind of um gorgeous examples of people it's like they've learned from the school of life yes. and the school of hard knocks <laughs> yes. rather than but they're not about book learning Car, like she's an expert in cars but not because she's been to school and learned about
about cars it's because she's learned it from and like when she's getting cross-examined and um, and he's like well what's your expertise and she's like no i've got absolutely no expertise mm. but i have worked as a mechanic for my father and done this and done this and done yeah. this and it's like and i think vinnie's got the same thing and he you see that kind of desire to understand customs and get to know people is where he gets his incredible knowledge and makes him so good because he's interested in people yeah. and that benefits him because he gets it you know it's it's so great oh the more we're talking about this film the more i'm just like yeah i love this <laughs> film i loved it before i really love it yeah. now <laughs> yeah i agree So, I mean, he's kind of, Vinny's sort of like beset upon all the way through the film. There's all of these sort of setbacks. Progression, everything seems to be going well. Minor setbacks, but progression Mm -hmm. overall. The whole way through, you are heading towards the kind of main set piece, which is the trial. Yes. After the absolute clusterfuck that was the the kind of (laughs) pre-trial where Vinny doesn't ask any questions at Mm. all, which they read as like just being inept. But he explains it to them. He's like, like, of course it's going to go to trial. I I had to write the quote down because I loved it. He said, you... He says, you're an ala fucking bama, you come from New York, you kill the good old boy, there is no way that this is not going to trial. <laughs> it's so great. He does, he does get it already. And it's also a really good way of just reassuring the audience, I think. Again, it's that, I think that's one of the things I appreciated so much about this film, is that there is genuine jeopardy in it. Is he going to fuck it up? Mm-hmm. But every time you begin to doubt it, it reassures you that he's got it, he's got it in hand. Like that moment where he doesn't ask any questions questions and you're like oh shit but then he's like no th- this is why and it's like, oh it makes total sense so that by the time you actually get into him cross-examining the witnesses it's sort of not a surprise you can kind of rub your hands together and go here we yeah, go yeah exactly yeah because they're gonna they're gonna get to see yeah, it <laughs> you, you, you know you know it's coming you know he's going to prove himself and that's a real delight as a viewer particularly so they've hired this or Barry from Friends. I want to keep wanting to say Barry from EastEnders. It's a different Barry. That's a, <laughs> That's different, a different Barry, Barry entirely. That's a different Barry. <laughs> and Janine, Janine pushed him down a hill and he broke well, his exactly. neck. Well, exactly. Barry ain't here no more. <laughs> yeah, and then he started hanging out with Ricky Gervais. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. That's weird, isn't it? Anyway, sorry, carry yeah. on. Anyway, um, no, Barry from Friends has hired this public defender who, you first meet him, you're like, Okay, yeah. I mean, he was—he's sort of what you expect from a public defender. In the they've—they've they've cast somebody who's not physically imposing. He's a bit sort of geeky and nerdy, and you sort of think mm, there's probably not much chance of him doing anything. But at least he kind of knows what he's doing, so you sort of understand that. But then he gets into court, and the public <laughs> defender—he can barely get his words out. Like nerves get the better of him, and he's stammering all the time. So the first—the first thing he's talking about is uh, one of the witnesses has identified these people, and he's like, ah. <laughs> But you you wear glasses, don't you? <laughs> and the guy's like, sometimes. He goes, ah, we were wearing the glasses on that day. And he's like, I was not. He was like, ah, so how could you possibly have identified these two men from that distance without wearing your absolutely necessary prescription glasses? And the guy's just like, they're reading glasses. He looks a little bit like Emperor Palpatine. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But that actor must have had so much fun. Oh, yeah. He's so much fun in it. He gets that little moment to kind of, um, well, not shine. He shines in his absolute ineptitude. It's great. Yeah. But also what I really like about that is that we, you've spent a bit of time with Vinny where Vinny has realised he's allowed to question the witnesses. Mm-hmm. 
beforehand and you see him do his little jog around all the witnesses and I was a little bit like okay he's gonna question the lady about her eyesight Mm -hmm. like that's gonna turn up fine great so it's really lovely to then see the other lawyer do that first but fuck it up and and, and as well because he's so smug and he keeps referring to them as eyeglasses Mm. which somehow is funnier why is that funnier I I don't know that's that's quite that's quite an American (laughs) thing though like referring to a thing by the thing that it is and its purpose as well so they they refer to eyeglasses and drinking glasses whereas we would just refer to glasses sorry I was gonna say that whole section where he's cross-examining the witnesses is so pleasing because you know that for each one of them he's going to have something amazing but we just don't quite know what it's going to be and it comes down to grits so Vinny says uh how can you be sure um you're absolutely sure that the length of time that passed it was only about five minutes and then he does this wonderful thing he says um since you you know like your grits regular creamy or al dente and the guy sort of looks he's just like regular i guess uh and he goes ah so you use use instant grits and then he the guy gets so sort of up on his high horse and sort of laughing with the rest of the court like no self-respecting southerner would be caught dead using instant grits at which point (laughs) Vinny pounces because we know from the earlier conversation that it takes 20 minutes to cook grits 20 minutes can I just ask what's a grit what is a grit oh you didn't catch that it's like it's corn it's like cornmeal that is then boiled into like porridge so it is it's like porridge porridge, lovely thank Um, you American listeners if I've got that wrong please do write in to complain this is the educational point portion of the podcast. <laughs> this is the portion of the podcast. This, <laughs> this is the portion of the podcast where Ed gets America offensively wrong. A regular segment. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, when uh, yeah, so Vinny pounces on this little detail and the guy falls apart, and that is the beginning of a landslide of uh, Vinny pulling apart the prosecution's case while cross-examining all these witnesses. This is probably a good point to um, bring up a, a quote that I've got here. Uh, Jonathan Lynn actually has a law degree from the University of Cambridge. Oh, really? He was really quite keen to make the legal stuff accurate. And apparently the film has been praised by lawyers and judges and, and whatnot for its accuracy and its depiction of legal proceedings. That's fantastic. So this is a quote from uh, Judge Richard Posner of the US Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. So this is one of the most prominent American federal judges uh, in sort of late 20th century. So he said that Michael and Vinny is particularly rich in practice tips. How a criminal defence lawyer must stand his ground against the hostile judge, even at the cost of exasperating the judge, because the lawyer's primary audience is the jury, not the judge. How cross-examination on peripheral matters can sow serious doubts about a witness's credibility. How props can be used effectively in cross-examination. The tape measure, for example, that demolishes one of the prosecution's mm. eyewitnesses. How to examine and cross-examine expert witnesses. The importance of the Brady Doctrine. How to dress for a trial. Contrasting methods of conducting a jury trial and more. That's so interesting. interesting. You wouldn't think that something billed as just like a kind of 90s comedy would actually be one of the most um, accurate depictions of the um, like criminal trial yeah. process. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's another quote here. This is from uh, Alberto Bernabe who is a John Marshall Law School professor. He wrote that Vinny is terrible at the things we do teach in law, uh, in law school, but very good at the things we don't. Uh, For example, how to interview clients, to gather facts, to prepare a theory of a case, to negotiate, to know when to ask a question and when to remain quiet, to cross-examine a witness forcefully, but with charm, in order to expose the weaknesses in their testimony. That's so great. great. I wonder if there are any lecturers or teachers who put my cousin Vinny on a reading list for law students. Um, Hey, law law students, (laughs) get in touch with us and tell us if this is on your syllabus. (laughs) 
Joe Pesci's one of those actors who like, I've always sort of been aware of him and I was like, oh yeah, no, yeah, won his Oscar. <laughs> but he's one of those actors who it sort of always still surprises me how good he is. <laughs> Isn't that ludicrous? You know, you're like, oh God, it, it, and Brad Pitt's the yeah. same. Where I'm like, I forget that he's Act, he's like a good, good actor yeah. as well as like yeah, I think Robert Downey Jr. A lot of people had that had that with Robert yeah. Downey Jr. until yeah. well, recently. I think you, I think you, yeah, you said yeah. when when we saw well, when we talked about Oppenheimer, I, I think you even said it was lovely to see him actually stretch those acting muscles again. Exactly. It it, it made me want to rewatch Chaplin actually. Uh, yeah, I've not seen it. You know. I can't remember an enormous amount about mm. it. I remember that he's very good. Kevin Klein is extremely pleasing is. as um. He's not Errol Flynn. He's the other one. God, who the hell is he? It'll come back to me. This isn't important. I'll cut this. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this was almost a digression on Chaplin. You've been listening to not quite half a conversation <laughs> about Chaplin. That um, little kind of hat trick of cross-examinations that mm-hmm. he does takes us through that bit where it, you feel like it's all going to work out great. And then you've got that lovely plot twist classic mm-hmm. of a setback, a major, major setback. Major setback. Which is the presentation of the dickhead from Independence Day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's the one I mentioned as a as a great that guy actor when we were talking about. Uh, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. He is James Rebhorn. He's great he's um, he shows up as in an actor. He, to me, he's the guy who gets fired um, from the president's yeah. team in uh, Independence Day. So uh, yeah, he turns up to give evidence about tire tracks. Yes, yeah. well, this is this is interesting because he's a surprise witness. So actually, not only is it a twist and oh, this is terrible and it could fuck everything, we also know from the earlier conversation that this is not allowed yes. so the system is actually geared up against our heroes now this is cheating to win yeah and in fact Vinny objects and the judge goes that was a very reasonable well thought and eloquently argued point overruled yes it's great because so you learn in one of those absolutely typical I think this must happen in every single legal courtroom mm-hmm. drama where the, the kind of opposing team ring up the night before to tell the lawyer mm. that they've got something that's going to appear out of nowhere. They've got a surprise piece of information. Yeah. So Joe Pesci kind of prepares himself to argue it. And then, yeah, it argues it beautifully. He kind of, it's one of those moments where he meets the judge halfway. He's like, okay, I'm going to play this by your mm. rules. I'm going to do all of the legal jargon, mumbo jumbo, reciting mm-hmm. stuff at you. Um, and then, and you think, hooray, he's got him. And then the judge overrules yeah. it. And you're like, no! But the judge overrules <laughs> him with respect. And then that kind of leads us into our big denouement, which, yeah. well, Chekhov's fiance with motor knowledge, I suppose. <laughs> sure. Well, so one of well, the- <laughs> just just before we get to that, he presents the ticking clock, this final mm. bit of jeopardy as well. Yeah, I know you're not who you say you are, and uh, Vinny comes up with another lie about who he is, and the judge can't get the guy on the phone to verify it, can he? Yeah. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to try again, but you've basically got 90 minutes. You've got an hour and a half to win this case. (laughs) I think that's almost exactly what Do you know, I do think it's a a feature of a really good legal drama when a ticking clock is... Um, introduced it's like I kept thinking even though this isn't really a legal drama but it did make me keep thinking of have you ever seen um, The Life of David Gale and that's got a ticking time clock but in this case it's the um, a ticking time clock clock. (laughs) you know a time clock as opposed to the other type of clock (laughs) (laughs) Um, and it is literally Kate Winslet 
is racing against the clock to prove Kevin Spacey's character's innocence. And it's like, and if she doesn't do it, he's going to be executed. That's the clock she's racing against. And so there's this like really like, it's really powerful, I think, that 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 addition of a kind of timed clock, a clock, a time, a time clock, clock. Yeah. you know. Vinny and Mona Lisa go to this diner and she's got some photographs developed and she's like, look at the photographs, look at the photographs. And he's like, and that's when he explodes at her. Well, I think Joe Pesci does a really good line in sarcastic fury. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at all these photos that are going to be so helpful. Here's the one that's going to crack the case, me in the shower. It's so, it feels so familiar, that kind of sarcastic, impotent rage. It's so familiar. (laughs) Um, And it's also a really clever thing that the film does because we need to see him lose it with her and be in the wrong, but we can't stop liking him. And that kind I think it's it's what makes Malcolm Tucker such a lovable character is he is, he's vile, but he's so funny. Like he does real entertaining swearing. And I think Vinny does the same kind of thing. He does, his rage is so funny. Uh, But, and also her cat, Mona Lisa is exactly the same. When she's angry with him, she's really funny with it it really helps us kind of fall in love with the characters even more when they get angry you almost want to see them angry (laughs) and it's like like, exactly like when when Vinny goes in to do his uh, cross-examinations and stuff you're like go on rip him to shreds you like can't wait to watch him rip the guy to shreds you're like do it do it (laughs) do me next do me next (laughs) (laughs) cross-examine yeah yeah it's true Mona Lisa, yeah, she storms out and it mm-hmm. seems like all is lost. Uh, and yes. he goes back to the court, he's got the photographs and then he notices one of the photographs, doesn't he? In the diner, mm-hmm. we've been shown the photograph. It kind of zooms in on it, like it zooms in on the tuna in the pocket. Mm-hmm. It's kind of going like, it's signalling, this is going to be really important. Yeah. It's like, we don't yet know why, how that is going to... Yeah, it's 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 help. how that's going to help is the, is the thing. It's going, yeah, this is going to be important. We promise that you're going to like it. It's going to be so pleasing. And also this character that we've told you the whole way through this film has got like an exceptional mind. Mm. It's like when Poirot gathers everyone in the drawing room to explain how the crime got done. It's that wonderful kind of rounding up of all the strings coming together and him being the only person who can see it. Yeah, it's exactly that. Um, And so he gets Mona Lisa to take the stand. He doesn't. He sort sort of doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he kind of he gets the bailiffs yeah. to force her to take yeah. the it's so you know but like i say i mean this was the, this was probably the only bit of the film that properly didn't hold water mm. for me her reluctance to do this in this moment um but undeniably it does make for a very pleasing and entertaining yeah. ending and i think she manages the shift in that character really well even if the kind of the initial reluctance doesn't actually really make any Mm. sense. I think that the way that she changes and the moment that she chooses to get it, like the moment you see the penny drop with Mona Lisa, what Vinny's doing is like, Oh, it's so great. Yeah. That moment where he asks her the question, does the does the defence's case hold water? And she goes, no. Yeah. And they're then suddenly on the same page together. And it's actually, it's a really yeah. lovely, lovely, lovely moment between the two of them. And actually, yeah, in that moment, you do see what they get out of each other. Well, it's kind of, it harkens back to, there's a scene earlier on where they're in the motel and... It's when the faucet's dripping, the tap's yeah. dripping, and she turns it from an argument into a seduction. Mm-hmm. And it's like you see them playing this little game with each other where they're doing law talk, yeah. and you see that same 
playful little fire ignite in that moment where they then start playing law yes. at each other and they're doing law talk on the same page knowing where it's going to lead except in this case it's it's going to lead to them winning the case yeah. they get the pleasure out of the journey <laughs> yeah. you know out of knowing something that other people don't know when she first takes the stand she's so underestimated as well like this has been a sort of recurring yeah. theme throughout the prosecutor just is so patronising to her it actually it, it kind of it echoes the first moment that we meet Mona mm. Lisa where they pull up in the car and they've got stuck in the mud mm. and that guy I can't who is it who there's a guy who comes up and is telling them is he a sheriff or like a lawmaker or something he comes up and he's really patronizing and Vinny says something about like oh she knows more about cars than anyone else and he kind of laughs he laughs it off from the second she steps foot in town she's underestimated and then she just fucking wipes the floor with all of them (laughs) yeah she does and she absolutely does and Marissa Tamay is brilliant in that scene she's so convincing yeah Yeah, I believe she knows everything there is to know about cars I totally Um, believe it and I hope that the film's argument is correct. I hope. I hope. I hope yes. that is right. I hope you. I hope you really could nail down exactly that car yeah. from that tire track for the reasons that she outlines. I hope. I hope it is that. I also really. I appreciate in that moment how they managed to make all that car talk, which goes totally over my head. Oh, me too. Does I don't understand any of it, but I find that ent- I find it entertaining to listen to her explain it yeah that's the important thing to take from it isn't it you don't you don't need to grasp all of the details i also love how joe pesci doesn't even have to do anything he literally he sits back and puts his feet up Mm. and kind of looks around to everyone and just goes like watch if i can go he's so proud of her he's so like in awe of her in that Mm. moment i love it it's a really it's such a wonderful moment and it's such a satisfying conclusion to the trial process you know and it's such a satisfying place for the movie to bring their relationship to because they've been sort of bickering and fighting throughout and like, everyone's under underestimated both of them but mm. particularly Mona Lisa and like in a lot of ways he underestimates her because he doesn't think that she can help he doesn't want anybody's help and that's that's his big problem but he he doesn't he doesn't know how she could help and it's the moment where he suddenly is able to just fix everything <laughs> when he realized that actually she can help and yeah. so yeah Mona Lisa takes the stand and essentially wins the case follows through with the ticking clock it doesn't forget oh, about yeah. the ticking clock but then it turns out that actually Mona Lisa has sorted that out as she well has, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's lovely because because in the, in their moment of triumph, all Vinny is trying to do is get away. All he's trying <laughs> yeah. to do is get away from the courthouse, and nobody will let him leave because they're all congratulating him. It's really, really lovely. Yeah. And then, yeah, he's just about to go, and he's just getting in the car when the judge finally catches up to him. It, that last shot is of them driving up, driving back along the same road that we saw the kids driving along. Mm in the first shot yeah. that, that little kind of um, mirroring it's just it, it, to me it's sort of it's the filmmakers going here's this lovely little package of a film with a bow on top for you to enjoy you don't have to do any work it's a nice neat clean clear lovely little present of a film for you to enjoy and I just I'm so grateful that you chose it Ed <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm really glad I happened on it the more we've talked about it the more I feel enthused by it I mean has your opinion of the film changed in any way over the course of the discussion um, only only for the better really like so are we any close to answering the question of what does Mona Lisa get out of the relationship with Vinny I think I am closer I think I think I know what my answer is I think she enjoys him I think she enjoys his company I think they enjoy each other I think they enjoy their 
antagonism with each other. I think they enjoy those yeah. fights that they have. And I think I think they are evenly matched. Yes. I think that the answer to what either of them gets out of the relationship is it, they, they get each yeah. other. It's like she gets the pleasure of him. Mm. They are a couple who are constantly playing yeah. with each other. They're, so, they're each other's rock and each other's family and each other's everything, you know? Have, have you have, have you worked out what you've picked yet? Yes, I have worked out what I've picked. Good. I was really struggling mm. with what direction to go in for ages. And then yesterday I narrowed it down to two directions. Okay. <laughs> um, and then over the course of the discussion, I've worked out what I'm going to do. Um, but I'm not interested in that yet. I want to know what you would have picked. <laughs> okay. Uh, so <laughs> if it was me, I mean, there's so, there's so many ways you could go. You could follow Joe Pesci into a sort of Martin Scorsese route and watch goodfellas or raging bull i know you're desperate to see that again well do you know um i i should watch it all the way through so i my opinion becomes valid oh yeah no you, you should watch it to the end it, it might clarify things or something uh, yeah, yeah, yeah you could you could do that i was sort of inclined to do was to go down the uh, courtroom drama route and i would mm-hmm. be picking 12 angry men because i've never seen it and it's a classic there are a few options for what i think you could have picked i mean first of all i'm going to get it out of the way because i've said it uh, before when I've been picking something for you um, you could well be following the screenwriter and watching Dirty Rotten Scoundrels because I know you love it um, I know I have said that uh, after we watched Dick Tracy because Glenn Tracy. Hed- why is the call yeah, because yeah. Glenn Headley was in Dick Tracy um, but yeah I th- I think you've probably not picked Dirty Rotten Scoundrels even though one day I'm going to say it I'm going I'm to be right I was thinking actually Ed we should be actually trying to achieve something with this guessing what the other person's chosen there should be some sort of prize oh, should there for the for one day when, when we get it right I don't know what that would be okay. but um, well I'll tell you what well, let's uh, let's have a think about that in the interim. Um, actually, listeners, if you've got any good suggestions for what the prize could be for which one of us, whoever gets gets our prediction right for what the other person's chosen, send some suggestions in. Yeah, we need we need some more stakes in this game. You could also go down a bit of a horror route. I know you, you, you'd love to watch Evil Dead Two again, uh, the same cinematographer. Always. Um, but we have watched a fair bit of horror lately. So you know what you could you could do mm-hmm. you could go thematic in a horror direction. You could pick a courtroom drama that is also a horror movie. You could pick The Last Exorcism of, em- of Emily Rose. Of Emily Rose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know, that was on my list for quite was a while really? as a potential. I was <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I, I fancy a courtroom drama that's also a horror movie. Have you seen The Exorcism of Emily yeah, Rose? Yeah, yeah, I saw it at the pictures. It's great. It's so great. Yeah. Really, really like yeah, it. I think, I think that was what I was watching when a man behind me challenged me to a fight. <laughs> When I went to see The Exorcist, I had to turn to the guy next to me and tell him to turn his fucking phone off. I know, I know. I believe it. At, at Psycho, the, the people in front of us were just talking mm. the whole way through the first half and luckily they moved. Yeah. I know because um, is it Kermode and Mayo have that The Code of Conduct, yeah. The Code of Conduct. And yeah, I just... I, 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 I mean, again, to our American listeners, maybe you can dispel this sort of myth um, that all American cinemas are like um, in that start of Scream 2 when they tr- go and see Stab. <laughs> like, may, I, I just assume that all of it is like people throwing popcorn and screaming and shouting and talking. Maybe. Yeah. Um, it isn't the exercise of Emily Rose although that's a really good Damn. shout well I'm out of guesses Do you want me to tell Go you uh, so there are two strands mm-hmm. that I was considering and you were so close <sighs> Um, with some of your guesses on um, the strand I was going to go mm-hmm. down. I was really tempted to go down another kind of courtroom drama route. Yeah. Um, I did think about 12 Angry mm-hmm. Men. Again, a classic that I've not seen and I'd really love to. If I had gone down that route, the film that I decided to pick, another Alabama set courtroom drama, 
and do To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, interesting. Which is a classic I've not seen yeah, again. And then I thought, do you know what? Do, I, what, do we want to talk about a classic? <laughs> not that what I've gone for isn't a classic, mm-hmm. but it's not a classic in the same way because I was a bit like, well, is there going to be anything to say about To Kill a Mockingbird or are we just going to be like, yeah, it's really good. It's a classic for a reason. Sure. <laughs> Nothing to say. I decided that the other route I was going to go down was to follow the cinematographer, Peter Denning. Yes. I've decided to give us some real work to do. Okay. You've already mentioned the film that we're going to be covering. Next episode, we're going to be having a chat at David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's see if we can untangle that. What a treat. <laughs> Are you happy with this choice? Uh, yeah, extremely happy with this choice. Yeah, I... Good. Ooh, ooh. The version that's currently 249 to rent on Amazon Prime is the 2021 restoration. So it'll look nice, yeah. presumably. Yeah, so um, join us next episode for that. Ed, what have you got anything on your schedule to watch oh, um, before next do, time? I do. So this evening, this evening actually, uh, I'm going to go see... Yeah. Uh, the Royal Hotel, which I'm really looking forward to. It Ooh, looks yeah, that looks great. Yeah. It's a kind of outback thriller. There are a couple of backpackers uh, get stuck in a rundown town in Australia. And yeah, the locals aren't as friendly as they first appear. I think I put Jem off seeing it when I uh, mentioned it in the same breath as Wolf Creek. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I don't think it's going to be quite as hard going as Wolf Creek, um, which is genuinely one of the scariest films I've ever seen in my life. God, Wolf Creek is great. Oh, it's brilliant. It's real yeah. great. Um, it's a really excellent um, entry into, I think, what is known as Ozploitation. Oh, I've <laughs> never heard that before, but yes, I like that. And also, I've got tickets uh, to go and see Clockwork Orange at the Electric Cinema. The day after, me and Jem together are going to see Inception. We're not going to go see Clockwork Orange together because um, it creeps Jem out too much. Yeah, I just, um, I just to myself was like, oh, what a pleasure to go and see a Clockwork Orange. That is not actually the right word, is it? Uh, no, there's there's not pleasure to get out of Clockwork Orange. I don't think. Uh, so yeah, uh, you got anything lined up to watch? What are you excited for? Kind of the next couple of weeks, I'm curating my watch list quite carefully because I'm giving myself a little writing retreat. Oh. So um, I'm going to make serious headway with a screenplay that I've been noodling around the edges mm. of for ages and I'm going to crack on and make some serious headway. But I'm going to curate a kind of watch list around that, which is all going to be kind of folk occult horror. Mm. So there's a few things that I've got on my list to have a rewatch of. Um, the Witch, um, which is a real favourite of mine anyway. Um, and then I've got a few bits that I'd like to watch for the first time um, most notably um, Hacksan oh yeah um, have you ever seen uh, Hacksan no I haven't I'm aware of it though say um, it's a kind of proper folk horror staple classic quite an old film I can't remember when exactly from but really looking forward to that and um, I'm going to watch the Argento's version of Suspiria for the oh, first yeah. time I'm so excited about that <laughs> I can't believe I've never seen it I, I'm, I'm after like films that are like lady gets liberated by dark shit <laughs> So, listeners, I know I appreciate that that might be slightly vague, but if you've got any good recommendations for Lady Gets Liberated by Dark Shit type films, I, I would highly appreciate. <laughs> Particularly, yeah, horror, f- folk and occult horror is what I'm after at the minute. So, yeah, send me over your recommendations because, um, I mean, yeah, there's stuff, you know, you can only do so much by Googling. Um, most of the best stuff will come from recommendations. Yeah. So This is nice. We're sort of build, building a little community. Just spreading the love. What I mean, basically, what I want to do is watch as many movies as I possibly can in my life and enjoy as many as possible so recommendations are what I need (laughs) so again uh, those channels through which to recommend things to us are again uh, the email address moviechain at outlook.com 
Um, we've also we're on Instagram, we're on TikTok, we're on we're on Twitter. Not as much, uh, but we are there. Drop us a little recommendation through any of the channels that you can find in the show notes. Absolutely. And I think if there's nothing else to discuss, Ed, it's the time to thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Um, it's been a real fun one this uh, this episode. I've really enjoyed our yeah. chat. Go away and watch Cousin Vinny if you haven't already. Um, yeah, exactly like Ed says. Uh, get in touch with us through the social media channels and through our email address if you've got recommendations comments criticisms life problems that you want some help with uh, and please do spread the word um, if you do like what you hear um, give us some ratings and reviews and just spread the word if you can that really really helps us build our audience um, and basically build our group of people that we can rinse for film recommendations <laughs> I think is probably what we're most aiming yes. for Ed um, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for listening we can't wait to chat to you next time um, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs>